Our text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. If you'd turn there in your Bibles, please, Hebrews 13 and verse 1. Again, in your pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1206. And please turn there if you haven't brought your Bible with you this morning. Our text this morning brings us to a topic that is very familiar to every one of us, really. And that topic is our family. We have all had families, some traditional, some not. Some functional, some not. Some have had fathers that loved our mothers, and some have not had and experienced this love. Some have had brothers or sisters to love and to be loved by, and some have not. Some grew up with one or both God-fearing parents, and yet some not. All these various conditions and many others leaving us wondering about what our relationship with our family should look like. Do you ever wonder about how you're to interact with your family? Even if that isn't a concern, your connection with your in-laws, if you have those, most certainly might bring some of these questions. Questions like, how do we evangelize? When do we evangelize? How do we interject about their spiritual growth or lack thereof? How do we offer care for our parents? And when do we offer that care? These are complex questions that, that vary with each family dynamic. But whatever the dynamic is, you have a role in your family. Well, our text today addresses a similar topic, only we'll see it broadens significantly outside our individual families to another set of familial responsibilities that we all have as well. And that's exactly where our title for the message comes this morning. I've titled our message this morning, What's Your Role in the Family? What's your role in the family? Our text again, Hebrews 13 and verses 1 to 6. Follow along as I read our text and then we'll make a few comments about it. Hebrews 13 and verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage to, is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What's your role in the family? As we've come through this great book of Hebrews, we've seen some incredibly detailed and some of the most intricate writing in the New Testament. I, I think most of us have all agreed by this point the author is Paul. And if you haven't gotten there yet, 
we'll all know perfectly when we get to heaven. Amen? Thank you. Well, we've seen incredible stylistic skill in this writing. The themes of the book are weaved one into another in such an intricate and detailed way. Some of them introduced earlier so as to provide a preface and then later coming forth in powerful ways. Some mentioned again afterwards just to recall and to bring our attention back to the amazing themes that he has talked about. Like all the way back in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 where we saw Jesus for the first time described as high priest. Now that was just in the flow of the discussion. There was one little tidbit that came out and then that launched us later when we got to the end of chapter 4 all the way through the middle of the 10th chapter in the most major theme of the book which is Jesus as high priest and his superiority in that role. So there's just this beauty and this intricacy everywhere, and we've seen it over and over again. After we had got through that doctrinal section that concluded in the middle of the 10th chapter, we moved into this amazing section of application that began in chapter 10 and verse 19, and then immediately into the hall of faith section of scripture we all love to read. Amazing to see the witnesses, the strength of those who have gone before us. Each of those four sections, an escalating example of all that we're going through in our lives so that we can draw strength from them and we can see how ordinary men and women just like us got through the difficulties of their lives in the same type of difficulties that we see, and in most cases, in much more exaggerated and significant ways. And in those, we drew strength. And we recognized the power of our faith. Then in chapter 12, it, it takes the, the giants of faith from chapter 11 and focuses on what their foundation of their faith was and what ours is, namely in the person of Jesus Christ. It takes us through understanding how in his humility, how in his servanthood, he showed us the perfect pattern. And that pattern is then moved into show us the application of discipline. And as difficult as it is, that there is tremendous benefit from it. After discipline, we're taken to understand the gracious approach that God now gives us through Christ expressed for us in the form of two parallel mountains. Mount Zion, the peaceful way, the way that Christ has come, and Mount Sinai, the thundering, powerful, and fearful wrath of God that came. So we have been given the gracious first opportunity to come to God. And then last week, through the daunting warning to believers, the last warning passage in our text, and a powerful one for those who might refuse to believe and the destruction of the earth and the heavens and the might and power of Almighty God that will destroy all of creation and all of those who will not accept Jesus. But for those who believe, there is the unshakable kingdom which we have inherited, the kingdom of God. Well, all of that moves us to the final section of application. And today we start the climax of this beautiful, beautiful and final section in the writing of the 13th chapter of Hebrews. As we approach this final chapter, we start by addressing the familial relationships 
and asking the question of our title, what's your role in the family? We do so by going to our first point in verses 1 to 2. And I've titled our first point, Being a Brother. Being a Brother. Now, we've read these verses twice now this morning. And I trust that as we're reading them, you being the good Bereans are asking yourself, where's the idea of brother in these two verses? That's really the appropriate thing we want to know. Well, the answer to that question is that in both verses, there is a similar word that means brother. We're going to see it very clearly in verse 1. We'll have to work a little more in verse 2. But in verse 1, the word is more clearly seen with the phrase, love of the brethren. It's a familiar compound Greek word. It's the word Philadelphia. We, of course, understand that word given uh, to a city in the northeast, the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia getting a lot of press or another about some silly event going on this evening, which I'm sure none of you would consider missing church for. But Philadelphia is our word for brotherly love. It is a compound word meaning just that. Now, I want to go over these concepts of love with you. And in order to do so, I need to address a few Greek words. Now, you're going to know most of them, so don't be worried about that. But our English only has one word for love, and it's important that we see the transition that we're being shown here. So stay with me as we move through these. And again, you'll know most of them. The necessity of loving your brother or sister is confirmed by the fact that this verb is in the form of a command. So obedience to this brotherly love is required and not an option for us. And we note that the scope of our whole discussion is revealed by the use of the term brethren. Now, some translations use brotherly here, which is perfectly fine. But the idea of brethren is conveying that the context of our discussion is not focused on the nuclear family or a single parent family, but rather it is the church. It is the religious family, the body of Christ of which all believers are a part. Something we'll address more even as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments. The church is the context in which this brotherly love must occur. It is expected and required, beloved, that this love of God be that which the body of Christ exudes one to another. The type of love being mentioned here is not the unconditional agape love, but rather is phileo love, hence the first part of that compound word, Philadelphia. Now, agape is the unconditional love of God. It is the covenant love of God. It is the selfless love that God alone can exist and expose in full manner. But phileo love, from which our word Philadelphia comes, it's a devotional love. It's a human love based more on our normal emotions. And we're given instruction in the Bible in this text that we are commanded to have that phileo, that brotherly love. Now, that doesn't mean that we are off the hook on agape love. The scripture talks about it in verses like John 13 and verse 34. And even in John 13 and 35, immediately following, the Lord said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
that being the agape love. And that as we express that unconditional love of God, people will understand that we are Christ's disciples. Because only in that way can that love be shown. We are incapable of doing that agape love outside of a belief in Christ. We're even told in Matthew 5.44 to love our enemies. This also is an agape love. And, and the, again, the only way we, in which we can love our enemies is by God's love in us. Because naturally we will not do that. Naturally we will be repelled from our enemies. But through Christ we are able to move forward. But it's interesting that in neither of those verses, in John nor in Matthew, is agape love a command. Because here, they're just areas that we're to pursue. But now, in verse 1, this Philadelphia is a command for which obedience is required. And failure to keep this commandment, beloved, is not an option. For as 1 John tells us, that those who do not keep his commandments are a liar, and the truth is not in him. But the command of phileo love is specifically that human love, and in our context, it is that love of one another in the church. Romans 12.10 speaks about the same thing, where it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So this is what that love, that phileo love looks like. It looks like a devotion. We understand what it means to be devoted to someone. We see marriages all about us. Some of us are blessed to be in those marriages where we are devoted to our husband or to our wife. So we recognize that devotional element. It tells us that we're to give preference to one another in that relationship. We're not to consider ourselves higher than any, but particularly those whom we must love. And not only that, we are to honor them. The scripture tells us in 1 Peter as husbands that if we do not honor our wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life, that our prayers will be hindered. So this idea of honor and devotion and preference, they're, they're central to this idea of phileo love. Well, now that we're on it, I, I don't think that we can get a pass on the agape love with regards to its command. In fact, in 1 Peter 1.22, we do see this agape love commanded, but notice the progression that 1 Peter 1.22 indicates. It says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now again, the two words for love there, we don't see in our English so much. But they are both, the first word is the phileo type love. The second is the agape love. With that in mind, let me read it again and notice the progression. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Notice, notice the process, the purification of our souls, the sanctification, the growth in holiness. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love, that is for a sincere phileo love of the brethren, because of that growth, now fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently agape love one another from the heart. You see, when we're commanded here in Hebrews 1 to have this 
Philadelphia, this brotherly love for one another, it is a stepping stone. But we must have it, beloved. We cannot grow to express an agape, an unconditional, a God-only type of love unless we have this type of phileo, devotional love. So vital for us to understand this transition and this progression. We find the same thing actually in Hebrews 12 and verse 14. But here in Hebrews 13.1, the initial step of your role in the family is that of brotherly love. You know, I remember growing up with two brothers, and uh, as brothers, we fought like cats and dogs, but you better never fight with one of our brothers because we were always there to step in. And there was one particular time, my youngest brother, Lonnie, was just, he was, he was battling with my middle brother. And mom and dad were right there, so I couldn't take my usual role and step in and just thump Terry. Because I knew I would be the one getting the thumping. And Lonnie had enough, and he had taken enough, and Terry was kind of tricky in the way that he was getting to Lonnie. And Lonnie had just said, that's it, I'm leaving. I'm moving out of the house. And he went up to his bedroom, and we didn't think a bunch of it. He comes back down with a little suitcase that he's packed up. Again, we're talking about uh, 1967, 1968. And he walks out the door of the house. And I said, you know what? I'm going with him. So here we go, out into the night. We didn't make it to the sidewalk because we were both scared to death. But you see the picture of love. I mean, there's no reason. It was just, it was a devotion to him. It was like, I see what's going on here. I can't interject. I can't take over. But I can support him. See, that's the kind of devotional, preference-giving, honor-giving love that's being spoken to us here in this text. So important for us to realize that application because that's the love that you must have for one another. You are considering them above yourselves, absolutely, but you are supporting them. You are devoted to one another. That's how well we must know one another. That's how important it is that we continue to interact, that we continue to learn other people in the church. Some of y'all that are sitting back there and some of y'all that are sitting over here, make sure from time to time you're getting a little together so that uh, you can take a moment and introduce yourselves one to another because only then can we grow in that love. And it is a love that is commanded of us. Okay, well, we understand the idea of being a brother in the command of brotherly love, but how about in verse 2? Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Where's brother in that? Well, the concept of being a brother is in the word hospitality. The word hospitality. Now, we've seen the concept of brotherly love was the word Philadelphia. And how the root of that is phileo, which is human love. Well, the same root is in the word hospitality. In fact, the word hospitality is philozenos. Not Philadelphia, but philozenos, Z-E-N-O-S, at the end of phileo. And phileo, love, plus that ending, xenos, means stranger. So hospitality, literally translated, is the love of strangers. Philadelphia is the love of brothers. Philozenos is the love of strangers. 
phileo reasserts our familiar love, brotherly love concept, but here our point of being a brother is further confirmed and expanded to be the love of strangers or the love of foreigners. So hospitality is literally stranger love. This is conveyed in verse 2 by the phrase hospitality to strangers. The word strangers is inherent in the word hospitality because it is stranger love. But it's further expressed for our emphasis so that we don't miss it. It's not that I can love my brethren, that I can love all that I know within the church, and I can show you all hospitality. That's a given. That's part of the brotherly love. No, this is for those that we don't know. These are for the foreigners, those who are unknown to us. We too are to express love to them. Can you think of another place in the Bible where it talks about this kind of stranger love? Of, of loving someone that you may have no idea about? Maybe somewhere in the Gospels? How about the story of the Good Samaritan? Is that not a perfect picture of love of a stranger? The priest walks by on one side of the road with the wounded man in the middle, the scribe down the other side of the road, and it's the Samaritan, isn't it, who comes along and bandages his wound, puts wine upon him, puts him on his animal, and takes him into the inn and gives the innkeeper two denarii and says, if more is needed when I return, I will pay it also. That's the stranger love. And what is the application from Luke's picture of the Good Samaritan? Who are we to love? Who is the stranger that we are to love? It's everyone. It's everyone. Now this stranger love might seem to give a negative connotation to hospitality. Now most of us remember from grade school the lessons we learned about stranger danger. Well this is not that kind of a connotation. And it ought not have that negative component. This stranger love in hospitality is in no way negative. We reinforced this lesson actually on Wednesday night as we were going through Philippians 2 in that lesson about how we are to do all things with grum without grumbling or complaining. And we expanded that to look at 1 Peter 4.9. And in 1 Peter 4.9 it says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And on Wednesday, we spoke about what that picture looks like, and I think we all understand it. Hospitality is something that cannot be accompanied by complaint. If you have someone coming to your home to get ready, to, and you're working hard, and they come into your home, and then you go into your bedroom as they're spending the night with you, or after they leave after dinner, and then you start complaining about what horrible guests they were, how they didn't help with the dishes, how they did this, that, and the other thing, then you are not expressing hospitality. Hospitality is that which comes forward with joy and without complaint, without bitterness. So it is not in any way negative. Romans 12, 13 also reinforces this need to exercise hospitality. Indeed, not just a need, but a command. And the other thing we have to note is what hospitality looks like and what it doesn't. I have run into Christians before who say that if you don't have people into your homes X number of nights a year, then you are not a hospitable family. 
that beloved is legalism. Yes, some may have people into their home. Some may be in a circumstance where it would be inappropriate to have people into your home. If you are a single woman and there is a man, it would be inappropriate for you to bring them into your home. Hospitality can have very many different ways by which it is expressed. We're going to see some of those as we move along shortly. So this stranger love is certainly not negative, and we expect that because like verse 1, this is also a command where it says, do not neglect hospitality. A command to us. Beloved, if you're not showing hospitality, then you're disobedient to God's word. And we've already addressed the consequences for that in 1 John. The fact that this isn't negative is further expressed at the end of verse 2 where it says, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Wow, that's pretty fantastic, isn't it? I mean, certainly not negative. Also, the word entertained here is the same root word for strangers, further confirming this connectivity. And now strangers are associated with the angelic realm. Obviously, the positive connotation of our verse indicates that this is the holy angelic realm. So, does this mean that angels appear to men? Does this mean that angels could appear to men now? To you, to me, in our house? Absolutely. Two prominent positive examples kind of come to light as we think about this back in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18 and verse 1 reads, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes, this is Abraham, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Abraham knew who were before him. He recognized not only that it was the Lord, but it was two of the holy angels that were there with him. And he runs and he falls down to bow before them. Beautiful understand the rest of the context and how they make the promise that Sarah in her old age is going to bring forth a child by which she laughs and she is then rebuked by the Lord through Abraham, who later accuses his wife. And she says, no, I, I didn't laugh. We have a pretty good indication that was exactly what it was, because that's what Isaac means, is laughter. So there is this beautiful picture of the angels visiting. Also in Genesis 19, in Genesis 19 and 1, it says, Now two angels came from Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. This is in more of a punitive application because we know that those angels will come and they will be the destroying angels of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are many more negative examples in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 8, which we went through in our Wednesday nights not long ago. But there's also a wonderful New Testament example. In Acts 27 and 23, as Paul is on the ship, you probably remember that context. Acts 27 and 23, Paul replies to the crew who are perishing in the great storm. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, 
saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Here in this positive example, we're reminded of all of these angelic visitations. But the connecting phrase that shows us that it's not just ancient history, it is not just biblical record, but this also is something that could occur today. And that phrase, for by this, in verse 2, tells us that. For by this, that is, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Present tense, command, do it now, church. For by this, some have entertained angels unawares. That could happen to us. That is why hospitality is so vital. Can you imagine what it would be like to have an angel that you were entertaining, having no idea? It could happen at any time. Hospitality is, is a command in our verse, but how much more so in light of the angelic potential? It's incredible that stranger that you might extend hospitality to might also be an angelic being. An important side note. Dr. MacArthur brings forth, it isn't that the angelic presence is the motivation for hospitality but it rather is to reveal that one never knows how far-reaching the act of kindness might be. Can you think of others that have extended kindness into your life? And it just meant the world to you. They may not have understood it at the time, but it had a lifelong and life-changing effect on you. Most all of us have had that kind of interaction, and that is the motivation. Yes, it would be wonderful to have an angel that we might bring into our home, but the fact is that we have angels all about us all the time, but more so, we have the church that desperately needs our love, and by which we can show that hospitality. We can show that love for one another and for all around us, for others that might come in beautiful to understand this. This extension of kindness is exactly what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse. As Jesus mentions his judgment at the second coming, he talks about these acts of hospitality in Matthew 25, 34. Listen to a couple verses in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, "'Come you who are blessed of my father.'" Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. What does hospitality look like? It looks like extending a drink of water. It looks like offering something to eat. It looks like welcoming a stranger. How vital is it? And I'm so thankful for the welcoming nature of you, this church, to our visitors. How critical is that? Well, it is fulfillment of this command. When people come in our doors that we don't know, it is incumbent upon us, it is commanded of us that we would welcome them. Foreigners, strangers, delighted and honored ones privileged ones to whom we would extend our devotional love. 
This is why it's so critical that we get to know one another and why we are constantly looking around the church for others that we might not know well or maybe know at all. That we would take time to extend a hand to share the love of Christ and the blessings that are ours in this glorious church. Well, Matthew 25 and verse 36, the next verse carries on as he says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Each of these beautiful expressions of your role in the family, in being a brother, and then the end of the verse, I was in prison, and you came to me, carry us beautifully into our second point, which is being a member. First, being a brother, and second, our second point, beginning in verse 3, being a member. Look at verse 3 with me. Remember the prisoner as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Here we have our third command in as many verses, that of remembering the prisoners. The author's exhortation is clear that those which are in bondage at the hand of the state are to be thought of often. Now, in the days of the early church, there were many imprisoned. Some for the same offenses for which men are jailed today. Yet there were also some who were in jail for religious reasons. Clearly, these religious prisoners needed to be remembered. We are immediately brought to remember Paul, are we not, who spent much of his time in prison? He who even in prison presented the gospel to magistrates and kings in authority as he did to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 28. Paul, through whom all of Rome and all of the Roman praetorian guard heard the gospel in Philippians 1, 13. The one whose life effectively ended following his second Roman imprisonment as we see at the end of 2 Timothy 4. Paul, the consummate example of a New Testament prisoner. But beloved, it isn't just these religious prisoners who are being referenced. It wasn't then and it isn't now. Many of the men and women in prison are true believers in Jesus Christ today. We tend to think that anyone in prison couldn't possibly be a Christian. How could they have gotten themselves there? Obviously no Christian would end up in prison. Beloved, that is not the case. Some of these people are just like your neighbors. Men and women who are living their lives, and they just made a really bad decision. This doesn't mean that they weren't and aren't believers. There are also those who legitimately come to Christ while in prison. What a blessing it is for those who are going and preaching the good news to them. Admittedly, there are false jailhouse conversions, but can we be frank? There are plenty of false conversions in our churches. So let's not point fingers at those in the jail that have done so. But in several cases, these are true conversions. That's why this opportunity that we have for the Malachi dads to go to the Returning Hearts Ministry in Angola Prison on Matthew 18 and 19, on May 18 and 19, is so amazing. 
I haven't been involved with that ministry in the Los Angeles County jail system. Can I tell you about that whole curriculum that is being used in prisons and county lockups all over our country? It was written not by some erudite academician or theologian or pastor. It was written by the prisoners in Angola State Penitentiary. They wrote it for themselves. The average sentence in Angola State Penitentiary is over 80 years. They will die in those prisons. And they have become hardcore believers in Christ. My mentor, Dr. MacArthur, went to Angola, brought a tremendous library to add to them. New Orleans Theological Seminary has extended an extension campus into Angola. There are men that are even being transferred to other prisons, having come to know Christ, studied and achieved a Master's of Divinity degree, and are proclaiming Christ throughout the country. And this Returning Hearts program, these believers and others whom they have affected and infected with the gospel of Christ in the Angola prison system and graduated from this program are brought to this Returning Hearts ministry where they are, for one day, brought together with their children who many of them will never see except through a glass partition. And they are brought together to to hug their children. And I'll tell you, when you see it, it'll knock you off your feet. Because it is the love of God in such an amazing way. And that is what it means to reach out to the prisoners. What a joy we have. What a praise. If, if your heart is touched by this, you must come. But it isn't just there. Our dear brother Dean and Shane are going in to the prison here in Mississippi repeatedly. If you are a man and you are interested in preaching the gospel and being a part of a ministry that is changing hearts and lives, men who are hungry for the word of God, talk to them. This is what it means. This is fulfillment of the word of God. And let's be frank. Verse 3 says we're to remember them as if we were in prison with them. That really brings it home, doesn't it? What if you had made that bad decision? You know, there are some people who are in prison today who did less severe deeds than some who are sitting in the room here with us. My guess is this statement applies to some in this room. In fact, I don't have to guess. I'm certain that it does. Laws have changed and in many cases becoming much more restrictive than when you might have grown up. When I grew up in Montana and Idaho, drunken driving was the norm. Friday night, you just did not even think about getting on the street because everybody's rolling out of the bar at midnight to 2 a.m. and they're all in the bag. You know, you get hauled into the lockup and it happens this week and it happens next week and it happened over and over and over and over again. And by God's grace, most of them didn't kill anyone while they were driving. But today... Our laws have changed radically, haven't they? Three times in a DUI, you're in the prison. Well, we understand, and that's what he's painting for us. This could be us. How would it be if we were in that situation? What if you had a true conversion experience in prison? We're truly repentant, and yet we're nonetheless in jail. But there are consequences for our sins, aren't there, beloved? 
They can be forgiven, but that doesn't mean that the effect of these actions won't continue to be experienced. Each of us as sinners understands that. But our command is to remember these as if we ourselves were there. When we consider ourselves as in prison, it really helps us get sympathy and even empathy. And this is further conveyed by the verb used because the verb describing imprisonment is a past tense verb with ongoing effects. So it's as if we were in prison as we consider them for a long time. You're not just in there for a few days, but you're in there for a long time, not seeing your spouse, not hugging your children. Well, this certainly gives us more of an understanding. And this is why these ministries are so vital. Well, we're additionally called to remember those who are ill-treated, those unfairly marginalized or inappropriately dealt with at the hands of others. The reason we're to do this is because the end of verse 3. It says, since you yourselves also are in the body. This is emphasizing that the prisoners and the ill-treated, which are believers, are also part of the body. The universal body of Christ. And this, is, this meaning is emphatic where it says, you yourselves. This is our focus of being a member. When we think of those in prison, it's not like it's, oh, those guys over there. Oh, those in jail in Mississippi. Oh, those downtown in the lockup. They're kind of those guys. No, they're, some of them are us guys. We must embrace that. We must remember them. We must minister to them. Who is going to care for them? Who is going to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ if not you? Well, that's who we are. This is our focus of our second point, being a member. Just as we are members of the body of Christ, so are these prisoners. So also are these that are ill-treated. Well, already we're beginning to see strong components of answering the question, what is your role in the family? It is being a brother, that is extending brotherly love to everyone in the body of Christ. It is expressing biblical hospitality, showing stranger love, being ready to go outside of our doors with the devoted love of Christ. Just also as we are with the ill-treated. It's also being a member, remembering the disenfranchised, that is, the prisoner and the ill-treated. Our next two points carry us much deeper into this role. And we're going to have to come back to those because of time, so as we have opportunity to rightly consider the Lord's table. So we'll come back to those next week, Lord willing.